Welcome to Policy Outsider, presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government. I'm Alex Morse. On today's episode, Rockefeller Institute fellow and Damon University professor Dr. Lisa Parshall returns to the podcast to discuss her new book, In Local Hands, published by SUNY Press, which explores the social, political, and narrative context surrounding village incorporation and dissolution in New York State with a particular focus on village dissolution efforts since the new New York Government Reorganization and Citizen Empowerment Act, the 2010 law that encouraged village dissolution in an attempt to make government more efficient amid growing fiscal uncertainty. Our conversation takes a deep dive into Lisa's research approach and answers questions like why village residents might support or oppose village dissolution, how dissolution may affect taxes and government services, and how big a role community identity plays in the decision to dissolve or not. Hope you enjoy, coming up next. Today, I'm joined by Elisa Parshall, fellow at the Rockefeller Institute of Government and professor at Damon University in Western New York. Lisa, thanks for joining today. Thank you for having me, Alex. So we're here to talk about your new book, In Local Hands, which is published by SUNY Press, in which you examine contemporary village dissolution in New York State. You also authored several pieces for the Rockefeller Institute and previously joined the podcast, so welcome back. And you talked about New York's Government Reorganization and Citizen Empowerment Act and its effect on village dissolution efforts in the state. So let's start off with what village dissolution is and why we're talking about this today. Just a little background. Villages are voluntary municipal incorporations. So under New York State Village Law Article 2, residents of a territory that meet population and territorial requirements can incorporate as a village upon petition and a vote of the residents. So dissolution is the opposite of that. It's disincorporation. It's when the residents of an incorporated village decide that they're going to vote to dissolve the village government and return administration of the services and government of the village over to the former surrounding town or towns. Well, that's a pretty clear definition of what a village dissolution is. Why would a village want to dissolve? What are some of these social and political factors involved in these decisions? Right. So one thing I should point out is that villages, when they do incorporate, are part of a town. So village residents, for example, pay town taxes for townwide services. They pay village taxes um, for their village services, and they can vote in both elections. But sometimes um, residents, for a variety of reasons of a village, may consider dissolving. So some do so because the village has maybe declined in population over time. It's become dysfunctional, could be um, voter apathy, or just because the village is fiscally unsustainable, what I call sort of a dissolution and decline. Another reason is that some uh, dissolve in order to rejoin the town. They believe that the town can more efficiently provide services. They could form one community. Sometimes they're upvolving um, governing issues to the town or towns in order to move the community forward to some perceived benefit. And this is what I call kind of progressive thinking dissolutions. And then the other reason, and and probably the most uh, common contemporary reason, is that residents are interested in dissolution as a way to lower their property taxes by eliminating a duplicative level of of government because villages and towns are both general service providers. So this will allow them to find efficiencies and also to take advantage of some of the state incentives. And this is what I call dissolution and taxes motivation. All right, so theoretically, those in a village that vote to dissolve, it would eliminate duplicative services or potential duplicative services. 
Uh, it might save them taxpayer dollars and would rely on the town government to provide those services. Correct. It's essentially a reorganization of local government to kind of reconfigure the service delivery arrangements of that locality. Sure. And so how would a village go about starting a dissolution conversation or process? Right. So New York has always had um, laws that basically allow residents to either cease operating as an incorporated village. I mean, it's had dissolution procedures on the books since the adoption of a general village law in 1847. And that can be done either by a process of ballot petition or a resolution of the village board to put it up to the residents to vote at a referenda. They did make some major substantive changes to the village law and dissolution procedures in 72. And then most recently in 2010, the state really overhauled dissolution procedures through the enactment of the new New York Citizens Empowerment and Reorganization Act, or what I'll call the Empowerment Act for short. And that lowered the petition threshold to put dissolution on the ballot from formerly 33% of registered voters to 10%. Once a petition is verified as valid, um, then a vote takes place. And if the village residents vote to dissolve, then the law requires that a dissolution plan be created. It does provide in citizen-initiated processes. It provides a period for what is called a permissive referenda. So if after a dissolution plan is created, there's a time window in which if you can get 25% of the village residents to sign a petition, you can force sort of a revote. But that's not automatic. It requires another petition filed and verified by the town. The law also authorizes village boards to initiate dissolution by a resolution to develop a dissolution plan that once approved, the board develops the plan and then puts that plan out for a public vote. So the main difference just to keep in mind between the citizen and board-initiated plans is the order of things. In board-initiated proceedings, a plan proceeds the vote, and in citizen-initiated proceedings, the vote proceeds the plan. All right, so there's two different avenues Correct. for pursuing a village dissolution. Correct, but both are subject to the final approval of the voters at the polls. So I think that covers what village dissolution is and some of the processes involved in that. How did you get started looking at village dissolution in the first place? Sure. So I became really interested in this topic in 2010 when several villages in Erie County, where I live, um, held dissolution votes, all of which failed. First, I was interested really in this wave of dissolutions that were taking place in the aftermath of the Empowerment Act's passage. But as I got further into the topic, I became more interested in the historical development of municipal reorganization, questions like why do villages incorporate in the first place? Why do they sometimes dissolve? And so the book really expanded to be more of a comprehensive statewide and a historical look as well at the formation and durability of village governments. Thanks for a little bit of that background. Why don't you walk us through how you approached this research? What was the methodology involved for this book? Right. So a lot of the research was um, archival with grants from the New York State Archive Partnership Trust and the Howard Samuel Center. I reviewed state records on incorporation and dissolution, went up to the archives and looked at all of the incorporation and dissolution files that the state had. I did a deep dive into the legislative history and the evolution of village law, changes in constitutional home rule provisions, I read a lot of hearings and committee reports, state constitutional conventions, legislative committees, and then I did a lot of combing, too, through historical newspaper sources to collect information on dissolution efforts, both past and present. And then I also, when I moved into the modern period, I looked at a lot of, like, OSC fiscal data from 2012 onward after the fiscal... Sorry, that's Office of State Comptroller? That's the Office of the State Comptroller, yes. And they created in 2012 a fiscal stress monitoring system. And so I was able to uh, look at the relationship between village dissolution and uh, fiscal stress. 
And then for the most part of the book, I used a pretty intensive case study approach where I focused primarily on those cases in which dissolution was voted on by residents. Again, going all the way back to the 1790s. For the contemporary cases onward, I, I was able to go a lot deeper, Alex, in reviewing dissolution studies and reports and local board meetings. Um, I tried to talk to a range of participants and actors. That included state officials, municipal organization leaders, town village officials, residents in both the pro and anti-dissolution coalition groups. And I visited a lot of villages where dissolution both succeeded and also where it failed in, in different parts of the state to try to develop some portraiture of the communities and also really just to check my assumptions as I was researching and writing. And another big source, I just have to give a shout out to local news reporters because a lot of the uh, contemporary news coverage really was vital for tracking and catching the flavor of these debates. That's a really comprehensive approach. State archival records, local law, detail in the village incorporation, dissolution, the grassroots approach by going into communities and talking to stakeholders who, that are involved in these community decisions. And while I talked to a lot of people, I want to just point out that the research was really conducted from an outsider observer perspective, in part just to keep a little bit of an analytical distance between the subject matter, but also to afford those willing to speak freely and retain their anonymity. And I wanted to really respect that while I might be studying this from a more analytical perspective, the debate over dissolution isn't just an academic one to the, to the communities that are considering this. Um, the dissolution question is often very contentious, and people on either side can and do feel strongly about these issues. So I mentioned earlier that it's kind of about local service delivery options, but it's more than that. It can be very personal, and especially for village personnel. The other thing I should point out is that a lot of these incorporation dissolution cases that I look at can also touch on questions of race or class, particularly in the Hudson Valley area. They involve some of the ultra-Orthodox communities. So one of the challenges and researching writing a book on, on this public debate was trying to really fairly represent the multiplicity of views and to capture an understanding while appreciating that I'm not really of these communities I'm looking on as, as an outsider. For an analyst, I think, you know, dissolution and incorporation is really just basically, again, service provision arrangements and forms of boundary change. But for the people living in these communities, these questions impact their daily quality of life, their community identity, their sense of themselves, of what community they belong to. So for them, it is personal, and it has practical consequences for things that they care deeply about. That sense of identity and community and the psychological factor you do touch on in your book, and I want to get to that. But before we do, I want to focus a little bit more on maybe some of the fiscal questions surrounding village dissolution. So there are a lot of political and social questions that villagers and townspeople, i.e. the stakeholders right. in this discussion, with regard to fiscal questions, how does dissolution or lack thereof affect revenue streams for villages and their accompanying towns? Right. So specifically on the um, fiscal questions, a lot of the study of, of, of dissolution and the preparation of dissolution planning and studying in advance of a vote um, wrangles over the potential cost and the potential savings. And that includes what the costs and the savings are going to be after you, again, differently reconfigure your service provisions. So when you think about dissolution, it almost always presents an opportunity to find savings because, in effect, that's what the voters are telling their elected leaders. Formulate a dissolution plan that keeps a similar level or a acceptable quality of services but does it more efficiently. So where the savings comes from First, when the village dissolves, the tax base, the properties, and the businesses of the former village, now they become part of the town's tax base. 
And then there are state incentives, um, including an increase and an enhancement of AIM that was in the form of something called the Citizens Empowerment Tax Credit that passed shortly after the Empowerment Act. And so that is new revenues to the town. It's an increase in AIM that is 15% of the combined levy of the communities up to a million dollars. There is a stipulation that at least 70% of that must be used for tax relief. So there's the new state revenues. In addition to that, there's the money that can be saved in wages and benefits and the legacy costs to employees of the former village. But that, of course, is going to be offset by um, some personnel of the former village that's going to be, need to be retained or perhaps hired by the town because they still need to provide services to that area. But that's um, some savings there in wages and benefits. There's also um, something I know you know a lot about, right, efficiencies and savings that come from the larger economies of scales by eliminating duplicative services. Effectively, a dissolution is forcing shared services, right? Right. And so you can get savings there, again, offset, of course, by some transition um, in transfer cost. And then there's the reduced operational cost, not having to pay, for example, for a separate town and village facility, not having to have duplicative equipment, again, with some offsets as the town takes on the, the services for the former village. So from the villagers' perspective, it sounds like it is a win in tax savings because they're not going to be taxed for providing village services. But on the flip side of that coin, that means the town is not going to have to provide those services. So for people that are in the town areas that are not in the village boundaries, are their taxes going to be affected by this? So one thing is that you really have to look at every unique case to see how dissolution will impact both services and taxes. And that is because it depends in part on what existed before. Um, that is what services were provided by the village or may have already been shared or contracted from the town, right? And then you have to look at the various options for continuing to provide services to residents of the former villages. The services that most people are worried about is emergency services. So when a village dissolves, for example, um, the municipal police department or municipal fire department are also dissolved. It doesn't mean police and fire services are not going to be provided, but it does mean that they will be differently structured. So again, it's hard to make universal declarations because each dissolution depends on an analysis of what is, using assumptions of what will be or likely to be when the town takes over. But what I can say is this, most dissolution studies that are conducted either by citizens, community groups, or contracted out to organizations that specialize in doing these types of studies for municipal entities, they show that dissolution provides opportunities for savings. And a majority of these dissolution plans do project some post-dissolution savings for residents of the former village. And that is often, not always, but often accompanied um, sometimes by a small increase for town outside of village residents. But again, I just want to point out dissolution plans always depend on the assumptions about how the services will be provided under this new arrangement. And when we do look at, at savings and projected savings, it's often questioned by residents of the village prior to voting because there is always a fear of uncertainty that just because the plan was developed by the village doesn't mean that that's what's going to be implemented by the town. And so towns are not bound to the plan um, unless, of course, they sign some MOU or a contract. But there are often concerns that whatever the plan savings are, that they could dissipate over time, they might turn out to be a little less than projected, or they could be reduced if the town subsequently implements a dissolution in a way differently than anticipated by the planners. And does your book track some of those outcomes? Yes, it is, though I will say that is kind of the bingo question and one that the state doesn't provide incentives or funding for communities to study. 
And that is the question of what is the fiscal situation for villages that dissolve five years, 10 years, 15 years out, right? And that's interesting. Yeah, that becomes more difficult to study in part because once the village is dissolved, for example, in the office of the state comptroller, in all of its data collection, it gets reabsorbed back into the town. And so it requires a pretty fine-tooth comb to go through and separate out what properties belong to the to the prior village. And then, you know, the it, it totally reconfigures what was before. So it's a little, you know, looking at apples and oranges. Sure. Okay. That's interesting. So, Lisa, what resources would you need to go ahead and track some of that stuff? <laughs> um, some deep quantitative resources and to be able to track property tax uh, values over time, to be able to map that with GIS systems. And then I think also to sort of delve into the specific budgets of a town after it has taken on administration of a village. I mean, you will often get, and this is sort of Wilson's law of public policy, right? When you ask people post-dissolution, the commonality is that people who supported dissolution in the voting stage will tell you this dissolution's been successful, and they'll point to the successes. People who were opposed to it will uh, bend your ear about everything that is wrong but with the dissolution. So it is hard sometimes to get an, an objective view of how well dissolution has been implemented and what happens afterwards. And you're also, you know, really have to get that information now from the town because the village officials and the village is no longer. I think that's pretty fascinating. Best of luck. I know you're going to continue to research all of this. So hopefully all of that quantitative data, the budgets and the, the contacts that you've been forging over the last several years uh, continue to exist so that you can further supplement your research. So I want to return. We talked about there's a psychological component to village dissolution. Many citizens tend to form an identity associated with their village, uh, sort of like a, a community pride. How does that identity play a role in dissolution efforts? It's absolutely huge. So um, when I first started this, I was uh, kind of approaching this in terms of cost-benefit analysis and looking more at the financials and um, effect on property taxes. And uh, what I found is that I really think that the psychological attachment that residents form for their villages, I think it is as or even more important than any fiscal or tax savings um, in these debates. So there are multiple cases where dissolution studies demonstrate that there can be a financial savings and sometimes even a pretty significant one. And yet dissolution is roundly rejected by the voters. In almost all cases, dissolution moves, the debate moves very quickly from taxes and services, even if that was the motivating reason for citizens, for example, petitioning to put dissolution on the ballot. When you actually get to the debate, should we dissolve or not, it often moves beyond those kind of tax impact and service issues into these kind of what I call intangible factors, where people start talking about their community history, their identity, or civic pride. And so at this point, really, these debates become more emotional and visceral than really just a, a cost-benefit analysis. And so when I visited places, that also really helped to shape the research because what I you know, started to realize when you go into these communities is you see why there is such an emotional attachment to local government. Municipal places, um, place names, signage, the boosterism, um, the identity of the municipality is really part of the community's fabric. And I also think there's a little bit of a hidden narrative at work, right, where we collectively, individually, people kind of identify municipal longevity with municipal health. And to the contrary, they see dissolving as a form of municipal retrograde or decline, or even it's equated with municipal death. 
And so dissolution to many people feels like an erasure or capitulation or admission of failure that their community is defunct. Wow, really? You know, I guess I can see why they might feel that way. But at the same time, if on the assumption that government services would improve through economies of scale, you'd think people would be better serviced. There would be cheaper water or emergency management services, uh, waste management, et cetera. Yeah, that's true. But again, once you start to get to that decision where, where voters are really contemplating, okay, this village may be no more, they do start to think about the other ramifications of that. And so when you think about what the the rationale here and what's going on, you can see all sorts of, again, emotional arguments, but also arguments about how protective and reflective having a dedicated village government is for their self-interest. So, for example, in wealthy, affluent communities, they're willing to tolerate the higher taxes because they equate it with a higher level of services. Many people equate um, living in a village, if you think about some of the suburban counties of Nassau and Suffolk County, where there was a proliferation of villages in the 1930s and 40s. The creation of villages was done really to create a character of those communities where you have lower population and housing density, kind of a more rural character, because along with village government comes more localized planning and land use development and control as well. And so what people fear is really that this is going to fundamentally reshape the character of the community. And as I was saying, this can uh, become contentious, particularly, for example, if you have a large village in a surrounding town that's rural. Residents of the village will say, can the town adequately fulfill our service needs? Right. Um, And sometimes you'll have differences between the village and the surrounding town or townships that are kind of different communities, maybe um, demographically or in terms of economics. And so that can create barriers and concerns too, because the creation of a village and the maintenance of those boundaries, they kind of set the boundaries of obligation. They define an us versus a them, uh, where my tax dollars go to benefit. And so you often see in these debates a lot of hard feelings between town outside of village voters and village residents about who's subsidizing whom in that area. So these things touch on, and again, in a way that becomes much more emotional, personalized, and because it affects what people perceive to be their kind of daily quality of life, that kind of washes out some of that just focus on you can save so many cents per 1,000 on your property taxes. That makes sense. I know in my own experience, I'm not always the most rational economic person in the world, so I, I can see how that can translate and generalize across communities. Diving into your findings, across New York State, since 2010, since the Citizen Empowerment Act, how many villages have initiated the dissolution process versus how many have successfully dissolved? I actually took it all the way back, you know, pre-1900, where sometimes the villages dissolve simply by just letting their charter lapse or expire. And that was kind of fun research to do because the state didn't start tracking this until um, 1900. So, but pre-1900, there were um, around 16 villages that I found that had been incorporated and then went away, usually through dissolution or through abandonment. From 1900 to 2009, pre-Empowerment Act, there are around 42. And I put some notes of caution in in my appendices and so forth because the state records um, are sometimes not completely accurate and they count annexations as dissolutions and a few places are double counted because of different name spellings and, and so forth. From 2010 to the end of my study, there were 18 
and one more Fort Johnson dissolved shortly after the book went to print. And so in New York State, under the Empowerment Act, a total of 47 villages have voted on dissolution. 18 of those have been successful, and 29 were defeated um, at referenda. And you do need to be a little careful when you look at dissolutions in the post-2010 period, because the number is actually a little higher than that, but some of those were actually uh, dissolutions that took place that had been initiated under the prior proceedings. And so there's a little bit of an overlap between the old law and the new law as dissolutions move through. So I had to un kind of untangle that in the book to just uh, focus on those that took place under the Empowerment Act's provisions. Right. And so since the Empowerment Act, the process has been made easier to initiate a village dissolution, but the rate of dissolution is lower than what it was prior to 2010. Do I have that right? Yes, you have that right. It's a little confusing at first, but to kind of judge the impact of the Empowerment Act, again, I separated out the cases that went through under the older um, provisions. It's called Article 19 provisions um, that were in place from 1972 to 2009. And then the cases under the Empowerment Act post-2010 that were Empowerment Act provisions. And what I found is that the Empowerment Act definitely has spurred an uptick in the number of villages voting on dissolution. So whereas there used to be less than one village voting per year under the old provisions, after the Empowerment Act, an average of 4.6 villages are voting on this in a year. So the Empowerment Act worked in getting dissolution on the ballot, just as you said, because it eased the pathway by lowering the citizen-initiated petition threshold. There's been a big uptick then in, in dissolutions post-2010. 18 is, is, is quite a few. And when I chart out dissolutions by decade, you can see the Empowerment Act at, in, you know, going into effect. But the rate of success has gone down. So whereas there was a 60% success rate before, the Empowerment Act's success rate is a 60% failure, roughly. But again, because more are voting, translates to an upward trend in actual dissolutions. And you'll be monitoring that through the course of your research. Yes. Well, we'll have to have you back on to get a look back at the Empowerment Act. What do you say? A couple oh, of years from now? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Alec. So what are other states doing in pursuing village dissolution? Are other states trying to encourage government reorganization or restructuring? Yeah, interest in, in village dissolution is not just a New York phenomenon. It's not just a New York state curiosity by any means. But we are at the head of the pack of states that have seen, a, a number of states have seen a growing interest in this, not to the same level as in New York, in part because I think because Governor Cuomo had made this a signature issue and invested a lot of resources of the state um, post-2010 into trying to incentivize communities into considering reorganization. Uh, but other states, particularly those that have large numbers of municipal units that are facing um, kind of high property tax burdens and have some uh, fiscally stressed smaller localities like Ohio, um, Illinois, New Jersey, you see dissolution is an issue there too. Now, New York's approach, the Empowerment Act and the incentives that were built around that, again, particularly the um, increase in AIM funding, the Citizens Empowerment Tax Credit, and then the other uh, program that the governor put in place was the uh, Citizens Reorganization Empowerment Grant that funds the study and implementation of dissolution. And then there was a whole other packages of shared services and efficiency grants and award programs. These are all to provide incentives for communities to consider uh, becoming more efficient, whether that's through shared services or all the way up to, to reorganization, dissolution, and consolidation. That was accompanied by other policies of the states that truthfully put a little pressure on communities, right? So the most notable is the property tax cap. 
that was passed in 2011 and made permanent in 2019. And that limits localities to raising their annual growth of their levy to 2% or the rate of inflation, which is ever less. And so that kind of puts a cap on local revenue growth. And it sort of forces then communities to have to try to do more with the same amount of money. And so when you put all these factors together, you can say New York is kind of a combination of a carrot approach with some fiscal pressures to try to incentivize and get communities to move towards reorganization. Some other states go the more the stick route and even maybe mandate local government reform, um, whether through automatic reclassification of municipalities based on population size, for example, or few of them have mechanisms, at least on the books, to try to, uh, to, to basically have a state takeover of stressed municipalities. In New York, uh, again, and what the research says and the consolidation says, some combination and, and, and having local officials involved is best in kind of overcoming local resistance to state-mandated change. So in New York, again, the approach has been to empower residents, to make it easier for them to put this on the ballot, to consider it. But it still, at the end of the day, leaves the decision to local hands. Well, that's a great plug for your book, Lisa, In Local Hands, published by SUNY Press. Final question for you. Where can listeners learn more about your book and purchase? On SUNYPress.com. That the SUNY Press has all the details of the book and ordering and, and so forth. It's also on Amazon and others, but I encourage people to go to SUNY Press's website. Lots of other good research there, too. Lisa Parshall, fellow at the Rockefeller Institute of Government and professor at Damon University, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on government restructuring today. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Lisa Parshall, fellow at the Rockefeller Institute and professor at Damon University, for joining us to discuss her new book, In Local Hands, published by SUNY Press. If you're interested in learning more, you can visit sunypress.com where you'll have the opportunity to purchase Lisa's book. You can also learn more about village dissolution efforts in New York by visiting our website, where we have links to Lisa's previous research in the description of this episode. If you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share. It will help others find the podcast and help us deliver the latest in public policy research. All of our episodes are available for free wherever you stream your podcasts and transcripts are available on our website. Special thanks to Rockefeller Institute staff, Joel Torado, Heather Trella, and Laura Schultz for their contributions to this episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Morse. Until next time. Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, a public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following at Rockefeller Inst. That's Rockefeller, I-N-S-T, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu.